you're listening to The Bounding Box, where we talk about web development, geo-development, and everything in between. All right, so welcome to The Bounding Box. Today I'm joined by Paul Crickers. So Paul, please introduce yourself. Who you are, what you do, what's your problem? All right. Um, again, I'm Paul Crickhart. I'm currently a federal contractor. Uh, my job titles, I have two jobs, some, you know, one for each contract. So I'm a senior principal internet engineer. Oh, wow. That's nothing. That doesn't, that sounds good. It sounds really good. Right. And then I'm also a, an engagement manager. So oh, wow. I'm on two contracts with the department of commerce and on one contract, I'm heavily data. So I do a lot of data work, data modeling, cleaning data, analyzing their data and working with this agency to make sure their data is good, refreshed, up to date, clean, displayable. And then on this other project where I'm the engagement manager, I'd probably say I'm more of the program manager. I submit, you know, monthly reports, make sure contractual obligations are met. I do the hiring. I handle, you know, finances and make sure we're on budget and on target manage employees and do those kind of things now so one project i'm still hands-on technical another one i'm strictly in a management role and i don't really touch much of anything well okay so you still get your hands dirty with some coding and stuff though that i do i don't think i could ever get away from that in, <laughs> in any of my tasks i think the first thing i'm going to do is fire up some Jupyter notebooks and do my work I mean, I think that's my problem. You know, I was thinking about this. What's my problem? My problem one is I'm no longer root on any of my machines. <laughs> and the second problem is data literacy or lack thereof among, you know, white collar or professional workers. Yeah. That I think a lot of, a lot of professional work nowadays is data work. And a lot of people don't recognize that that's what their work is. And their inability to work with data affects their job. So that's my job now requires me to be able to manipulate data. I don't, I don't have to write Python. I could pull up, you know, Excel, or I could use some of the systems provided to do my work, but it would be extremely slow yeah. you know, doing all these things one off manually. And it's just so much faster for me to do my work when I can load it into Python and do, you know, value counts on a, pandas column right and be able to see a profile of data that i'm looking at or what i'm working with yeah i'm not sure what uh they're doing in school these days for like uh, geography students and stuff if they're having them do that kind of work uh bringing up uh, pandas using python or even r or something like that to uh, create data from and i guess mostly students probably collecting data for field work maybe for a paper or something like that, or yeah, so I'm not sure how much they're actually doing these days. I imagine maybe environmental science is probably doing a bit more of that than strict geography work. But yeah, it's the kind of thing that you end up learning more on the job when you come in because you have to, right? You're told like, we've got all this data collected and we need to output a product or something from it. So get to work on it. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of my, uh, one of my slight fears is I always hear that the more you get into management, the less you get to write code, which, you know, I guess is okay to some point, but I really, I like, I like writing code. So. Yeah. My current, my current thought is I have spreadsheets that handle finances that have been developed by other people that have formulas and, you know, several tabs and 
those kind of financial spreadsheets that get mon- that get huge, right? Yeah. I, I thought about trying to re-implement that in code. Right? Provide, <laughs> build a database with some tables that hold, you know, hold some values and then be able to input data into it and have it spit out data instead of going in and editing a spreadsheet every single day. I haven't got there yet, time. Time willing. It's it's in it's in my mind, right? To turn that job into some coding work as well. Now, how long have you been in this industry? I imagine you've been in it for a while. Well, so I'm not a geographer. I'm a political science major. I went to UMBC, Maryland, Baltimore County, and studied oh, wow. political, I studied political science. But that was 1994, and the Windows lab was upstairs, and the Unix lab was downstairs, and the Unix lab had big monitors. So I spent a lot of time in the computer lab during breaks, and I had to learn Unix because I was too lazy to go play in the little Windows lab. So I started learning like Bash and, you know, editing files in Unix so I could change my desktop background, yeah. you know, on X Windows. And and so I, was, I did my graduate degree in political science as well, and I presented a paper at a journalism conference for PhD students, and I was the only one that wasn't. And it was like this examination of the Intifada with the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times and the comparison of how they, you know, talked about what was going on. And I, I came up with, with I was going to use certain words to define positive or negative coverage. And I didn't code very much at the time. So I used WordPad and would dump oh, all wow. this data to WordPad and I'd control F. You know, I'd find to do my word counts. And now I'm like, wow, I do sentiment analysis and do this in Python. (laughs) So in my work, right, even as a social scientist, it just got into this place where I was doing work with data. And like, you can call it lazy. I call it efficient and lazy. But it was, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. And technology and coding is how I got there. So I was working a research job and was bored and wanted to come back to school. And I really got interested in planning, you know? So I went to planning school and my first semester I took GIS. That was in 2007. And I loved it. It was like the greatest class I could have ever taken. Oh, it, was, wow. I mean, it was amazing. I think we started with like 25 students and we were down to like four at the end of the semester. And two <laughs> of them were engineering students, like all the planners failed. And it was, it was great. I loved it. And I ended up, quitting planning school and took a job as a planner. And so I've had one class in GIS. So I wow, guess I've, okay. been doing, I've been doing GIS since 2007. And it was all because of one class in planning school. Well, you got bit by the bug there. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, that's it. I went from planning school to architecture and it just became heavily geo. Architecture was like the most fun I ever had. I was Technically, I was a facility planner, so we did educational facilities, but we did a lot of things with floor plans and utilization of buildings, but we had to map school districts, and nobody was mapping anything. Not a single person used any spatial software. They would all pull up Google Earth, wow, you know, and take a screenshot of a satellite photo and dump it into a, a report and say, here's the location of the school. Or they would, you know, zoom out and take screenshots and yeah. drop drop dots in like Paint or Photoshop, and it, it just shocked me that no one was actually doing spatial in this kind of planning. And 
we had moved to Revit. So there was this move where half the company was starting to go to BIM. And we put forth this idea, like, why are we using AutoCAD? Let's use Revit for floor, floor plans. And the idea of like room objects had data associated to them and we could generate plans by modifying data. And I could color rooms by categorizing rooms by a type as a field in the properties instead of adding layers in AutoCAD and drawing polygons. Yeah. Right? So even the architecture started to bring in some of this GIS and spatial work. Oh, that's really cool. I've never used Revit. I never knew I could do all that really cool stuff. That's neat. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is I spent God, I spent months trying to figure out how to bring an IFC file into ArcMap, right? Into whatever the 3D Arc was at the time, Arc Globe. Yeah. And I guess I guess at the at that time you couldn't. And then a new version of Revit came out and you could start to import IFC files into huh. into Arc. And it was like, wow, I can import windows and walls and all these architectural drawings in. And it was amazing how much data you could actually bring in to ARC at the time. And I gave a demonstration at the authority here and was like, look, I can tell you every window in your school district that's single pane, <laughs> right? Like I could just run this wow, query, okay. run a query and highlight it, right? And I think it was like ArcGIS Explorer. I was using, I was using ArcGIS Explorer to load this stuff in and show them how you could bundle this data in this program. And, you know, you could do some of this this analysis and work and generate yeah. reports, you know, using IFCs and Revit models. That's nuts. Yeah, 3D seems to have like a really big impact on decision makers and stuff. I remember we, um, I worked for a sanitation district. We had landfills and treatment plants and stuff. But the big question was like, okay, if we um, put a, like some sort of tower on the top of our landfill, uh, who's going to see it, right? These different yeah. neighborhoods in the area, like how are they going to be impacted? How many complaints can we expect to get? And should we even do it type of thing? So yeah, we do all these different, well, back then you couldn't like just spin it up in a few minutes. It took me a, a few days to put together all these different scenes of what it would look like from different perspectives and stuff and get it to the people that make those decisions. And yeah, they love it. They love stuff like that. Just be able to see visually in the 3D environment of like, what that would look like at the time, right? Instead of like an impact of a 2D map with maybe like a view shed, which is cool, but doesn't have that same kind of impact, right? Which is really neat. And yeah, yeah I was I mean... a... Sorry, I was going to say, I was, I was an AutoCAD guy way back when. And uh, that's kind of how I got into a little bit of programming because I got into AutoLisp. And I think things like that, when you're... Whether you're working on like CAD and using like the scripting languages there or... Any GIS software, like even QGIS has Python stuff you can do instead of just start scripting things. Uh, and then ArcPy, whatever, for ArcMap Pro that we've got. Um, once you get into those, that really kind of opens up things to, you know, you're automating things and doing things faster. All these different tasks that might take you like uh, a couple of days to actually put together. You got to put the work in. But once you do, that's it. You just start uh, dumping things in there and get your output. You're good to go. Right. I think that really brings a lot of people in. To stuff like that yeah and, and the thing with revit is revit came out with a plugin that would export to a database so you could export your revit models to sql server oh man right so one of the things one of the things i did was well at the time it was php it was oh, i'm going to stand up a little php page right <laughs> and i'm just going to connect to this database and allow you to edit data in the database oh, like wow, okay. usage, right 
Yeah. So what, I don't need an architect spending their time saying what rooms are going to be used for. The building owner can do that, right? So here's this website that allows the user of the building to go in and edit data, and the architect presses a button in Revit to suck the data back in. And now <laughs> the data is back in the model. I mean, this is basic Web 2.0. Yeah. This is nothing groundbreaking, but it was it was mind blowing to an architecture firm that this was even possible, right? It was, I think Revit came out with an API and you could do .NET stuff in the API, but the idea of you have this database sitting outside of Revit where you can dump your model to and then a web page can modify it and come back. I mean, wow. it was amazing. And you couldn't touch geometry and rightfully so. I don't want anyone modifying geometry, but any attributes of the building. And I tried to convince the architecture firm I was working for at the time that you're doing all this work designing buildings. And when you're done creating the building, you walk away, but you hold this physical model of the building, which I say, everyone's doing data. Now, if you're an architect, you're really dealing in data. The design of the building's one thing, but the designing buildings one and done. Yeah. The value of that building is the data associated with the building. And I think it was someone in the Coast Guard made that comment that the data about the buildings is more valuable than the buildings themselves. Wow. And it's like, you, you can keep this client and sell this back on the facility management side. When, when was the swamp cooler pads, when were they changed on that building? Click on the swamp cooler, you know, in ArcGIS Explorer in your 3D model, and it can tell you when it was changed, right? And you can edit that data every time you make a change. And you can store the data about this building inside the model about when lights are out, where there's graffiti, but it's this facility management piece you could sell on the back end. And they didn't quite get it. You know, they were their architects. They designed a yeah. building and walked away. But it was really the, um, the contractors that were doing like the really interesting 3D stuff. You know, they cool. lay down a slab and come in and drop, you know, virtual 3D models on it and start spray painting everything where everything went and collision detection. <laughs> and I mean, it was just wild. But I think my background is like, I know more IT than a spatial person uh -huh. and more spatial than an IT person. But by no means uh, do I consider myself an expert in either. But, you know, you go to these different fields and you can kind of show some basic IT things that would take people pretty far. That's neat. I never really thought about uh, that kind of workflow with like designing buildings and architecture and stuff. And even, like you said, bringing it into facilities management stuff, which I know is a huge, uh, just like industry to work in. Because, I mean, without it, I mean, the buildings just end up being run down. And that's how you have situations where no one knows when inspections are done type of thing. And yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it all comes back to data. And, you know, one of my issues with spatial people and GIS was. I don't know that a lot of them understood data. I think they focus too heavily on points, lines, and polygons. It's that I'm drawing a street network and I draw a bunch of polylines and I lay these streets out and look, I have streets. And you go, yeah, but do those two lines really intersect? Right? Like we, we would import our street network into 911 and no officer would ever use it for routing because it would have you make a right-hand turn off an overpass. Oh, yeah. Because the street network was drawn, but it wasn't it wasn't drawn to represent data accurately. You know, you'd make you'd say, you know, we should make this 3D and everyone thinks, oh, you know, you want to make the roads. Yeah, 3D. Exactly. So like that. It's like, no, what you don't understand is this is technically a graph, right? This is not just a bunch of lines. These are edges with nodes and you need to think of it that way. 
you can't have a single street segment broken up into pieces if it's really one piece and every intersection should have a node. But the way a lot of people would draw it is it's just drawing lines or, you know, with these split versus merge models where they would just dump all the data into the geometry as well. And it's like, I don't need all this data embedded in the polygon. I want this in tables where it belongs, right? Yeah, some exactly. kind of normalized structure, not just throw every column in here with this polygon. And then you get data people that don't understand spatial and it's like, you have all these coordinates as strings in a column when it could be spatial columns, right? And they don't know yeah. what to do with them. And it's just a bunch of numbers and they don't understand how to handle that either. Yeah, every now and then I get asked about, well, what would it take if I wanted to do routing in the client, right? I don't want I don't want to send a request back to the server. I just want to do it right at the client. Well, I guess that depends on how far you want to go, right? Maybe you could do it on the client in a three-minute zone with the amount of data you need to do something like that. But beyond that, I mean, it gets a little nutty, right? Trying to trying to build that. Yeah, I mean, I think I was able to steal the only license for the routing plugin for Arc Server when I worked at the city, <laughs> right? And, and I, had th I threw up like three GitHub examples of how you could use the Esri routing API on the uh, city of Albuquerque streets. And you could do a lot of pretty interesting things. You know, I mean, you could do service areas, you could do just straight up routing. It was just, I took that plugin for a spin once and it was, it was just a missed opportunity. No one really understood. The, the GIS data tended to be a lot of just map making still. Yeah. A lot of it is just putting parks on a map, drawing streets, here polygons of facilities, right? No one really does anything with the data. So you have this ARC server serving all these endpoints, but no one does anything with it. And I think it's just an unfortunate case of you have uh, agencies or local, really mostly like local agencies that just need to drop out reports right they they need to show where they've got a general plan or something like that and they just need to just display on the map they don't need to do anything with it because honestly when i worked uh, a county and i talked with other regional planners and stuff like that that kind of work was never done by jazz people that work was done by engineers that would just give you numbers and say hey draw this on the map for me don't don't change the numbers don't give me feedback just draw it <laughs> right so it's not until you get up to the analyst level that you start doing some interesting stuff. You can have some input on that kind of thing. Then you start worrying about the data. You start going, well, okay, you've got uh, some population projections here that look a little weird, right? Now you got to like justify it, which is, uh, I think that's where you get to the deep stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a conversation going around about open data and how it's kind of been a failure. And it's, it's part of that is it's like, there's one data that's been released isn't really good, but I think GIS people really were the heads of open data, that a lot of open data in cities was spatial data. And maybe it's a lot of people outside don't know what to do with it, but there was never really any use. It was just cataloging things. And maybe internally, like you said, at our police department, we had analysts that would try to do something with crime maps, whereas what they would release is just, you know, a series of points about where something happened. Yeah, exactly. They don't have anything about that data at all right like uh, you can't make sense of the crime map unless you have demographic data maybe some other economic data some other data pertaining to where these crimes happen to be then it starts to tell a story but points of the map doesn't really tell you anything but it checks off a box right they're told right. to release some data get it out there okay it's out it's done 
I don't need to do anything else. But I also want to talk about, you've written a couple of books, right? So you wrote a leaflet Three book. Three now. Three now. Well, okay. Three books, yeah. I know you got the leaflet book, and I saw you have a Python book from a couple years ago. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I did with Eric and Silas. Okay. We did a geospatial book. And what was the and third then one I then? Just released, was it two years ago? I did a data engineering with Python. Ah, okay. That one was kind of, it was more of NiFi book. I was heavily into NiFi. Uh-huh. I was doing a ton of NiFi work. So I, was, I pitched that book on NiFi. And then because there was Python in it, the publisher realized that using Python in the title might make this sell better. And so it, it was marketed as a Python book, but it's definitely more of a NiFi kind of beginning data engineering. Type. Oh, okay. I got to check that one. I haven't looked at that one. I do. I did have your leaflet book and I think that was the only one I got. So I got to check out the Python programming one. That's the, yeah. The data engineering, man, that was a lot of fun. That's, <laughs> I really like the idea of moving data around. Right. Yeah. And I was working at the district attorney's office. We had a very, a district attorney who realized that data was extremely important and wanted to do something with it. And their case management system for the state of Mexico is horrible. I mean, it's just, it's awful. And nobody has access to the data. So he fought really hard when he came in the office to get backend access to the data. And he's like, I know we can do something with this data. Yeah. Right. So they brought me in and we started taking data and throwing it into Elasticsearch and serving <laughs> it up in Kibana. And we, we worked with Sandia National Labs on Saturdays and we did just tons of data engineering. We were pulling data from ATV and it was just, that was another interesting thing with spatial was using elastic for spatial data. Oh, okay. So it was, it was really kind of neat and it's gotten so much, I mean, it's so much better now. I think version, I think seven of elastic wow. and made things a lot better, but in the older version, still just being able to put spatial data into elastic and how fast you could query things. When I worked at the yeah. police department, you couldn't full text search police reports. You know, there's a million huh. police reports and narratives. You couldn't search them. But in Elastic, you could literally search them as fast as you could type. Wow. That's you cool. Know, you could start typing in letters for gun and, you know, top 10 reports that come back as you're typing and you could do full narrative searches. Like it was incredible. And then you could do all the spatial elements as well. And it was this idea of like, you know, I took GIS classes, we used Esri, we used QGIS, but not all spatial is a map. A lot of, this is where it gets into spatial is data, right? There's cartography yeah. and there's maps and there's some things you need to see visually, but a lot of questions, it's just, I have a question. Yeah, and I just exactly. need to know something. I think I had applied for a job at an engineering firm and I never got it. And the test was how many, how many of like, how many facilities are within one mile of a road? Right. Well, that's a spatial question to me that the answer is a number. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I think these people want, you know, they want me to make a map and show all these facilities <laughs> and make it look pretty and color code everything. But to me, it's there's seven. Like if you want to know where they are, absolutely. I can make a map as a, you know, to show you where they are. But if you're asking the question, how many facilities within half a mile of road, I don't necessarily need a map. Yeah. But I also, but you should also be able to answer that question without opening up ArcMap or QGIS, loading in shapefiles or layers or whatever it is and running you know, tools on this. These are things, this is where Python and other languages come in handy, right? Is you can answer, 
answer these spatial questions repeatedly and quickly. That's the kind of thing. I don't think I've heard anybody mention it for a while, but I remember a few years ago, it was really big of like, I just want a search bar as the entry for my app. I want to type a question and you give me back something. And at the time it was like, they'll give me back a map. But that's a good point. Like I just type in like something like that, run some heuristics on what they typed and go ahead and present maybe a chart. Or like I said, just a number, just give me a number, maybe a little detail info and I could click something and then I get to a map if I want more information. But I might not need that. So why bother? Yeah, I mean, I started, when I worked at municipal development, I started messing around with that exact thing. Make it look like Google and it would query our ARC server. <laughs> and it would answer how many open 311 tickets does my department have? Okay. Right? I don't have to open up the 311 software. I just type it in. How many 311 tickets does traffic engineering have? Yeah. And it would just go to the traffic engineering endpoint and it would pull them up. And, you know, how many bridges are there? Right? Those are just basic questions that the geo data and all the geography that's been drawn and, and entered will answer those questions, but I don't have to pull them up to figure it out. I can just hit the endpoint and do the calculations there. But I think Python was, was extremely valuable for that. So when I took GIS, I was really big into like agent-based, you know, modeling at the time. <laughs> there was something about agent-based modeling that was like super cool. And I think, I think Esri actually had a plugin for repast. Oh, At one wow. point, they do some have. really cool stuff where you could like animate the maps and read read the shape files of where you were. And oh, that's do cool! Some really cool stuff. But I was just doing like really basic geo coding, and I was writing Python code with agents, and they would do things, and it was really trivial and pointless. But it it, it got me <laughs> into using Python and the Arc environment to really be able to do things outside of the. Yeah, exactly. That's how it goes, right? You experiment a little bit and you try this stuff and you're not going to use everything that you do, but you know, you learn along the way and you, you're going to use it later on for probably something else. It's going to come up at some point in the future. So that's great. Yeah. It's like people would have, why do you want to, why would you want to geocode outside of ArcMap? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of times I just want to know the coordinates of an address or I want to do a ton of them at a time. I don't, I don't want to open a map every time. I yeah. want to do or maybe I don't even have the software. So, you know, I stood up a geocoder at the city that I basically used every job I've ever been at, right? Every time I left those jobs, yeah. I knew the city had this geocoder that I could use. And anytime I need to look up addresses, I just go ping <laughs> their public, their public, you know, geocoder. And it made my life at all my jobs wonderful because here's my geocoder, right? I didn't need any software. I just needed Python and their endpoint. And yeah. I could do work wherever I was. That's a great way to go about it. <laughs> right? Oh, man. All right, Paul. Well, I want to be respectful for your time here. Uh, and I do want to ask, so if you have any tips or tricks for listeners today or any advice for them at all, it doesn't even have to be geo-related. I mean, I think if you're in geo or tech or data, I think we tend to really get into our little niche and you really focus on this small piece and try to become really good at it. I think people really should broaden their skills. Touch a lot of different things. Look at different fields. You may not be a data engineer, but look at what some of these companies are doing and how they're moving data. Look at what people outside your field are doing and what kind of tools they're using and think about how these things could really be brought into the work you're doing. I think this kind of broad skill set and learning from other disciplines will really help 
a lot of people, right? I mean, I'm a political scientist that was a facility engineer that worked in engineering, that worked for the police department, that was at a law firm. This, this weird background and touching all these different things has helped me be good at tech and geo because you can pull from all these different disciplines and people who have different ways of doing things. And it's, it's super helpful. Being a specialist is great, but I think we're moving away from that and finding these generalists that are really yeah. good at a lot of things that can answer a lot of different questions makes people extremely valuable. Oh, that's great advice, Paul. Be the Renaissance man. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, that's it. And, and watch Dan John podcast if you want to stay in shape, right? That's right, yeah. I'm a big Dan John fan. I've actually got a Dan John book here. I remember all his old articles and stuff like that. He was a, uh, was he a shot putter? Discus thrower at discus. Utah State. Right before I got there, I threw discus my last year in high school and then went to grad school at Utah oh, State. Oh, wow, okay. And I'm like, I knew nothing about Dan John until recently and was like, wow, I almost ran into him when we were there. And I wouldn't have even known it, but. He's great. He is, he is part, uh, like, lifting coach, writer, part philosopher. He's really got some really great uh, articles and stuff out there. So that, that is a good yeah. one. He's Stand amazing. And, and my rowing addiction was brought forth by GIS. It was Matt Savage and Paul Giroux were talking about rowing and Concept 2 rowers. About, <laughs> God, it must have been like two and a half years ago. Wow, okay. And they were, they were on there talking about rowing, and it sounded so fun that jumped in and do you have we a... were talking about doing 5ks and 10ks and i thought that's unbelievable no one can do that and <laughs> two years later i'm on it but thanks to you know gis chat and these gis people on twitter got me sucked into the world of rowing fortunately i'm too short and light but... <laughs> do you have a treadmill desk i do not i had okay. a standing desk for a while and i half liked it half hated it but... yeah the same thing. I've got the standing desk, and I, I'll, I haven't stood for a while. But <laughs> every now and then it'll pop up. But yeah, right. it's just not. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know if I could walk and work. Standing was, yeah. But yeah, the treadmills. I've seen those, and just no, I don't think so. Oh, awesome, Paul. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I'll let you go. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bounty Box today. Please subscribe for more content.